0: my sermons, I I try, I don't know if i always succeed, but I try to teach something and preach something. Uh, I think in teaching, I hope uh, that it's about the passage itself. You know, it's great to bring in illustrations and stories and everything else, but, but what we're called here to do is gather around the Word and to learn about the Word of God. And so, I hope to teach something. Scripture has its utmost importance in our lives. And so we gather here together as the church, as we are guided by the proclamation of the word of God. And that proclamation of the word, I hope, has meaning for us. It it leads us beyond ourselves. It orients us Godward. And so I hope that with each sermon, there's, there's meaning in those words that we read, that we talk about, and that we take that with us. Well, we've been looking at the first pages of the Bible, and these first accounts of the Bible are foundational to our understanding of really the Bible as a whole, from Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation. And these first chapters, they communicate to us such great truths about God, about creation, about humanity, about the reason that we are here and how God has called us. These first chapters are packed with meaning and significance, and they do have relevance for us today. There's these ancient words that, you know, even kind of seem kind of weird to us, as we'll see in a little bit, like talking serpents and things like that. They have meaning for us today. And so as we continue to to look at God's word, let us pray. God, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Well, most, if not all of us, have heard these words in which we are about to read previously, we pray enliven our hearts to receive them anew. Speak to us, sanctify us, and empower us to follow where you lead. And may all glory, honor, and praise be yours now and forevermore. Amen. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say, You shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. But the serpent said to the woman, And they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths loin for themselves. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, a phrase that we've mentioned um, a lot over the past month, month and a half or so, is that of the image of God. Specifically, back in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, it says that humans, we are created in the image and likeness of of God, and sometimes we use the the Latin language to say that humans are created in the imago Dei. And there's many ways that people, or theologians, and scholars, and historians have have talked about um, what it means to represent the image and likeness of God, the imago day. But one helpful way of thinking about it um, is to think about it in three specific categories. The image of God means that we are rulers, vice regents of creation, more specifically vice regents. And so what is a, a vice regent? That's not a word we use a whole lot today. Well, so dictionary.com, that's my source on this definition. It uh, defines vice regent as a deputy regent, a person who acts in the place of a ruler, governor, governor or sovereign. So a vice regent is someone who has the authorization to rule under the supreme ruler's behalf, but the vice regent's authority is not absolute. It's not something that they necessarily possess in and of themselves, it's something that they've been entrusted with. And that authority that they're given is entrusted to them to oversee and to govern as the ruler would see fit not as they would see fit but they're governing for the ruler and so their uh focus their job is to rule as the the sovereign would see fit and so the roles and responsibilities of the vice regent they're defined and they're given by the sovereign well god has entrusted humanity as we've talked about before, to be stewards of creation. All this is, is not ours. But we have been entrusted with it by God. We rule over creation not by our own authority, but only by that which God has bestowed upon us. That is, that is our calling. And so Genesis 128 where it says, And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and all the, all the other things. God gives us that. God gives us creation. God gives us life. And God gives us that role and calling not to govern how we think things should be, but to govern how we know God wants things to be. Psalm 8 is another great example. Verses 5 and 6 The psalmist says, yet you have made him, that's humans, a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. That responsibility that we have is a gift. I think we all know and kind of understand that one of the highest honors that someone can receive is to be entrusted with leadership. Not to take leadership for themselves, but to be, you know, voted or nominated or elected into an office to govern, to be a leader. That's one of the highest honors that someone can receive, because we know that really what true leadership is, it's a call to serve. It's not a call to lord over, but it's a call to serve, and because it's that place of honor, that call to service, it is a big responsibility. It's a high calling. And we are to take those responsibilities on with integrity and with the greatest of care. Because we know it's not just about us. It's not just about creating a world that we see fit. But as we are called by God to be his stewards, to be his vice regents, we are trying to live out our lives as God would see fit. And so being the image of God means being rulers as in vice regents of creation. The second role of being the image of God, and we focused on this last week, is that we are priests of creation. If Genesis 1 describes creation, you know, it's not so much focused on, you know, just what is material in our world, but it's talking about how God created all of this to be his divine cosmic temple. And we are called to serve God in creation as his priest just as priests in the old testament were called to serve you know the the temple in jerusalem if we think about all of creation being god's temple we all of us are called to be priests in god's temple uh, exodus nineteen six. 6 it's a good verse where god says although the whole earth is mine you will be for me a kingdom of priests a holy nation that's god's intent and design for us And um, I I mentioned this definition last week, but I want to read it again because I think it's a good one for what is a priest in in the big sense, not just like in the Catholic church sense, but just in in the big sense and how we're talking about it. A priest is someone who presides over the overlapping boundary of heaven and earth. Their primary function is to represent God to people and people to God. Priests act as mediators between heaven and earth, between the divine and human They are embodied representatives of the divine. And so if if you think about it, there's actually a lot of overlap in, in this call to be priest and also this call to be vice regents. Well, also as we looked at last week in Genesis 2, Adam and Eve in the garden were called to be priests, to serve in that sacred space. If we remember from last week in Genesis 2, verse 15, it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. In our minds, you know, it goes straight to agricultural things. It's just like working in the garden. But when you look at the words and you kind of bring out the the bigger meaning of what's happening in that passage and and the context of it, the, the word that is translated as till it is also just the word for work, to work it. it's also the word for serve serve it serve in it it's also the word that the old testament uses for worship that our life and our calling to to work to do the the work that god has called us to do that is an act of worship in which we all partake in in that way we serve as priests similarly that second word at the or the very end keep it so that can also be translated as watch over it Care for it. Guard it. So while on the surface, again, you know, we think maybe when we read that at first glance, it's just about tilling a garden. This is God's garden. This is God's creation. And man is ultimately put there to serve God by maintaining and caring for all of creation. And so all of Adam's life is to be an act of worship. Worship and service as he serves and cares for the garden as god has called him to do and this idea of priesthood it continues on in the new testament it's not just this genesis chapter 2 thing first peter says like living stones let yourselves be built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to god through jesus christ you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a holy nation god's own people in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light, we are all called to be priests. The priesthood of all believers, as I mentioned last week, was a point of emphasis during the Reformation. All right, so we have that we're called to be vice regents, we're called to be priests. What's the the third and last piece in this Imago Day puzzle? Well, to be the image of God also means to be prophets of the word of God. A prophet is one who's uh, communicating God's word, the voice of God to the world. A prophet speaks on behalf of God to communicate God's truths and God's commands. A prophet also stands up to injustice and names that which is opposed to God. It names what sin is. A prophet calls out idolatry, and it beckons people to turn back to God and to live under God's rule and blessing. And a prophet communicates the gospel of God to a broken and lost world. So in the garden, Adam and Eve were given commands. They weren't really given all that many, you know, prohibitions, just like, don't eat from that tree. They were, but they were given this idea, they were given commands, they were given boundary and structure. And they were given responsibilities. And they were responsible. They were the ones. Not the other creatures, not anything else. Adam and Eve were the ones that were responsible to abide by those commands. To embody those commands and to communicate those commands. In Genesis 2, we see that that command was you know, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil... But we'll get to this in just a second. But I wanted to, to highlight these three. Oh, go back just real, real quick. Y'all, y'all, got a, y'all got a spoiler there. Um, so the image of God means to be rulers, vice regents, priests of creation, prophets of the word of God. Okay, now go to that that image. And so if you think about it, this is kind of a... I stole this from online, Bible project. They've got some good things. But uh, what is that, a Venn diagram? Is that where the overlapping... So this idea of the image of God is where all of these things overlap, where priest and prophet and king overlap. That is is the fullness of what the image of God is and what it means. And we'll talk more about this. Keep this in mind. It's a a helpful little thing, but we'll we'll kind of come back to this in a second. But let's look at the first few lines in Genesis chapter 3 now, so our text for today. It says, now the serpent, so there's the serpent creature, and we know something of this serpent creature was more crafty. Uh, Another, you could also translate that as like cunning, deceitful, clever. So this serpent was more crafty or clever than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. So this isn't something outside of God's creation, something that God had made. And this... um, well, I'll just go ahead and say this. So Genesis doesn't really explain it or get to it, but the serpent, as we know, is connected to the, to the image of Satan, the father of lies, the one who masquerades as an angel of light, the great deceiver. And so the serpent said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden I mean, notice uh, a lot of times we think of evil as being something just so black and white. But the serpent doesn't force Eve here to commit some heinous act where right away it's like, ooh, that's evil. He doesn't present something just overtly evil before her. What the serpent does in this story is presents a question. Did God say? I like the King James wording of this, Hath God said? So if we think about that question, Hath God said? What's the motive for that question? What's behind those words? And ultimately I think that the motive for that question is to undermine the word of God. And it undermines really in in two ways. One, it's a question for Eve. It brings into question... Do you know what God's word is? Hath God said? Do you know what God's commandments are? And along with that, this is kind of where He's going. It's going to test their fidelity to God's truth. So it basically asks, Do you know what God says, and are you going to live by God's word? To which Eve immediately replies to this question. She, she replies positively. We're like, go Eve. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Nor shall you touch it or you shall die. She knows the command. Well, the second way that that question, hath God said or did God say, undermines um, uh, or that the, the intent is to undermine is it seeks to question the very integrity of God and God's word. So it's, in a way it's an attack on Eve but it's an attack on the very word of God because it questions God's integrity of God's own decrees and governance and commandments and it's, con- it's a condescending critique of God's word. I, th- I think You know, if we were to put ourselves here, I think what's intended in the text is is a sarcastic tone. You know, we can't read tone into words that often. But if we put ourselves in what's going on, you know, if we were to phrase it or, you know, add in the tone. Like, did God say, you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Did God really say that? God, that's your commandment. Questions brings into question God's very commandment, which is what the serpent then says the next time it speaks, because it goes against what God says. The serpent says, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So it's an attack on Eve, on her knowledge, and on her fidelity to trust God, and it's attack on the very word of God. To bring it into question. To question its validity and its substance. Friends, the attack on God's word continues to this day. We are called to be defenders and proclaimers of God's word. Uh, If you think back to the Reformation, Martin Martin Luther... uh, So if you know, he posted his 95 Theses... And he challenged the church's authority and some of its practices. And and for that, he was excommunicated. And then at that point, Luther was called into, essentially to to a trial. He was called in to recant of his works and his writing. And really what was at the core of, of Luther's work and thought was that we are justified by faith alone. That as he read Scripture... And he saw Scripture to be the ultimate authority for life and for the church. He came to this realization that we are justified by faith alone, not by faith and works. And that the authority over our lives isn't Scripture and tradition and other things. It's just Scripture. He saw the importance of Scripture. And so in January of 1521, Martin Luther, he was summoned to the the Diet of Worms, that's what the word looks like, or you can, it's a German town, so if you want to give it a little V at the beginning, Worms. uh, He was, I was going to say invited. He wasn't invited, he was summoned to go to the city of Worms to recant of his positions to reform the church. And he says, I can't recant. And he says this this is quoting Luther. He says, If then I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture, or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will recant of anything. For it cannot be either safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise. God help me, amen. Luther stood boldly for the word of God, for the scriptures of God, for the truth of God, at the risk of being not only just excommunicated that he already was, but at the risk of being put to death. He saw scripture as having such a prominent place in life that it was the authority for his life. He saw it as the one and only authority for the church and and Jesus, but Scripture being our guiding um, uh, work for us all, and for the life of each and every Christian, that Scripture is the authority. The Bible has has been called the best-selling book of all time. I think that's probably true. If you add it all up; it's probably the best-selling book of all time. But it's also been the most rigorously scrutinized book of all time. Especially since the the days of the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment with critical theories and all that, the Bible has been put under so much scrutiny. But its truth remains. Its truth endures. The the Bible contains the message of God's life-giving truth and Yeah, there's passages in it that aren't easy to read. Some are difficult to understand. And yes, unfortunately, the Bible has been misused. It's even been used abusively. Texts have been taken out of context or have been um, applied literally when they're not meant to be literal in that way. And so the call is for us as the prophets of God, to know the word of God and to study the word of God faithfully. It's important to learn about what the Bible is, what the Bible says, and how to read it, and also how not to read it. Actually, I I brought this book, um, I read this when I was on my pastor cohort trip a few weeks ago, and it's how not to read the Bible. And uh, just kind of an insightful look at how not to read the Bible. How not to use it Um, abusively or you know and answers questions that uh, many people raise who critique and criticize the bible Uh, it's an interesting read if, if you want it but we have this responsibility to be prophets of god's word and truth adam and eve in the garden were to be the voice of god they were to stand up for truth and righteousness, and boldly say, "Thus says the Lord." But instead, they were lured away from God with that subtle question: "Did God really say? Did God say that?" What Genesis three describes is not simply what Adam and Eve did. I think sometimes we focus on them, you know, taking the fruit from the tree and eating it. It's something they they did. But also what Genesis 3 describes is what they failed to do. It wasn't so much their act of eating the piece of fruit. They failed largely to be the image of God. They failed to be vice regents over creation. So they were the ones that were supposed to be ruling, supposed to be representing God's authority over creation. And instead, they allowed the serpent to have influence over them. They failed to be priests. They failed to watch over and to guard the sacred space. They failed to maintain the holiness of that space. And they failed to be prophets. They failed to stand up for the word of God. And they compromised their own fidelity to the truth of God. They no longer trusted God in that moment. And instead of serving God, they decided to be self-serving. And they failed to worship God with their lives. Well, there is good news for us. Because if we're honest, we all fail. We all fail in those same three ways that Adam and Eve failed in Genesis chapter 3. But the good news is we have a mediator who is Christ. Christ was anointed. That's what the word Christ means. The anointed one. Christ was anointed to perfectly fulfill the roles of prophet, priest, priest and king in our confessions we talk about the three offices that christ the mediator holds and it's those three offices prophet priest and king and we see these reflected in hebrews 1 where it says jesus is the reflection of god's glory the exact imprint of god's very being jesus is the image of god and he sustains all things by his powerful word he is prophet He had made purification for sins. He is priest. And he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is king. Jesus is the image of God. The anointed prophet, priest, and king. And so our call and our responsibility as individuals and as the church, both here at Grand Lakes Presbyterian but around the world, is to conform to the likeness of Christ. To represent Christ as the body of Christ to be the Imago Dei in the world once again, and to serve as vice regents to the best of our ability, to serve as priests to the best of our ability, to serve as prophets and defend, to proclaim the word of God. So my concluding question for us to reflect on today is, what place does the word of God have in your life and over your life? And may we reflect on the image of God and how we can conform ourselves To Christ, to the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray.